MSW Media. Thanks to Hunter Douglas for supporting Daily Beans. Hunter Douglas makes innovative window shade designs, gorgeous fabrics, and control systems that can be scheduled to automatically adjust to their optimal position throughout the day and bring greater convenience, style, and comfort to your home. Go to HunterDouglas.com slash Daily Beans today to get your free Style Gets Smarter Design Guide with fresh takes, creative ideas, and smart solutions for dressing your windows. And thanks to Crooked Media's Hysteria, the weekly podcast hosted by political commentator and comedy writer Aaron Ryan and former Obama White House Deputy Chief of Staff Alyssa Mastromonaco. They're joined by a squad of funny, opinionated women. They cover everything from reproductive rights to rom-coms, breaking down the political news of the week. Listen to Hysteria every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Wednesday, April 27th, 2022. Today, new audio reveals Kevin McCarthy was really upset about rhetoric from Matt Gates and others. New text messages from Congressman Scott Perry to Mark Meadows emerge. Another loss in New York for Donald as the court orders his appraisers, Cushfield and Wakeman, to comply with the attorney general's subpoenas. Madison Cawthorn is caught with a loaded gun in an airport again. And Attorney General Merrick Garland testifies about the Hunter Biden investigation. I'm Allison Gill. And surprise, I'm Dana Goldberg. Hey, Dana, we're on a little bit of an iffy connection and you're on Zoom audio, but you were able to call in from New York. So hello. I am. I hope this goes hope this goes well I, and not a hindrance to your magnificence if, if I had not called in. So hopefully we'll be it'll be good for the listeners. You add to the magnificence of the show always. Thank you indeed. So Madison Cawthorn caught with a loaded gun at an airport again. Such a schmuck. <laughs> again. And now three times he's been pulled over on a suspended license. What the fuck, dude? Douche crew in the house. I don't understand how this guy is still sitting in Congress, uh, to be honest with you. And this really shows you why we need to get out the midterms. Uh, these people that are elected to a very important position in our United States government who are just fuck wobbles. Like, I don't understand. Yeah. And now we have new text messages, which I'll get into in the hot notes, and new audio recording of McCarthy going after Matt Gates and Kevin McCarthy going after Mo Brooks. And uh, and then, of course, we've got Gates and Stefanik going after Cheney and McCarthy. But, I, you know, I'm missing the uh, Republicans in disarray headlines. I don't see them anywhere. Yeah, no kidding. So what the fuck? So that's my headline today. Republicans in disarray. But a bright light a little bit later in the show, I'm going to interview Luma Muffla. She's the author of Learning America, One Woman's Fight for Educational Justice for Refugee Children. And she's doing amazing things. And I can't wait to discuss that with her and her new book. So look for that a little bit later in the show. And then, of course, we'll have the good news. But first, let's get to the rest of it and hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. Mr. McCarthy talked to other congressional Republicans about wanting to rein in multiple hardliners who were deeply involved in Trump's efforts to contest the 2020 election and undermine the peaceful transfer of power. And that's according to new audio released and obtained by the New York Times. That comes from this new book from the two New York Times reporters. Same audio with McCarthy saying about the 25th Amendment for Donald and how he's going to call him and tell him to resign. Okay. Now, in the phone call with other Republican leaders on January 10th, 
McCarthy referred chiefly to two representatives, Matt Gates and Mo Brooks, as endangering the security of other lawmakers and the Capitol Hill complex. But he and his allies discussed several other representatives who made comments they saw as offensive or dangerous, including Boebert and uh, Barry Moore of Alabama. Now, Mo Brooks and uh, Mr. Gates were the prime offenders in the eyes of GOP leaders. Mr. Brooks addressed the January 6th rally, as we know, on the ellipse, which preceded the riot using incendiary language. After January 6th, Matt Gates went on television to attack multiple Republicans who had criticized Donald, including Liz Cheney of Wyoming, a member of the leadership team. Quote, he's putting people in jeopardy, said McCarthy of Gates. Quote, and he doesn't need to be doing this. We saw what people would do in the Capitol, you know, and those people came prepared with rope and everything else, he said. Representative Steve Scalise of Louisiana, the number two House Republican, was on the call and suggested that Gates might be crossing a legal line. Quote, it's potentially illegal what he's doing, Scalise said of his Republican colleague, Matt Gates. <laughs> now, speaking about rank and file lawmakers to his fellow leaders, Mr. McCarthy was sharply critical, suggested he was going to tell them to stop their inflammatory conduct. Of course, he never did. Quote, our members have got to start paying attention to what they say, too. You can't put up with that shit, he said on the phone call. So news was swearing, but this time it's Kevin. During the January 10th, 2021 phone call, McCarthy was speaking with a small group of Republican leaders, including Scalise, Cheney and Tom Emmer of Minnesota, as well as a number of their aides. It was on this GOP leadership call. McCarthy told his colleagues he would call Trump out and tell him it would be my recommendation. You should resign. That's the same call. McCarthy's comments casting other Republican lawmakers as a menace within Congress illustrate the difference between how he spoke about his own party right after January 6th and what he imagined to he thought it was in strict confidence and now the way he has interacted with those lawmakers in the 15 months since then. Well, there you have it. And this next story is going to take you back on that roller coaster of will there be consequences? Will there not be consequences? (laughs) And we have, hopefully there will be consequences right on the heels of Donald being ordered to cough up 10 grand a day for defying Tish James subpoenas for documents and testimony from him and his kids, Ivanka and Don Jr. A Manhattan judge has ordered Donald Trump's longstanding appraisers, Cushman and Wakefield, to turn over documents to who? The New York Attorney General, Letitia James. And speaking of the New York, that siren in the back is proof that I'm actually in New York City. It's like the movie Big where he's watching television and he turns it off, but there's still gunshots and screams outside. Yeah. So that's passed. Now, the decision in the second victory Monday for James's probe of the former president's business dealings. In a press statement, James promised, quote, our investigation will continue undeterred. Early Monday, the same judge, New York State Supreme Court Justice Arthur Engeron, held Trump personally in contempt of court and ordered that he too comply with James' subpoenas, which in his case, seek his personal business documents. Now, as Cushman and Wakefield, the firm, uh, which severed ties with Trump's businesses last year with some fanfare, we would say, must by May 27th turn over all documents relating to its prior real estate work for Donald. Now, the firm must also turn over details on thousands of comparable non-Trump assessments and business communications relating to their decision to sever ties with the Trump's business. This is another quote, Cushman severed ties a year ago, correct? The judge asked a lawyer for AG Kevin C. Wallace during Monday's afternoon's hearing. The answer was yes, Your Honor. And the uh, Your Honor said, and you want to see internal documents on why they did that? I think it's fair to say they made a noisy exit, Wallace said. (laughs) Yes, we'd like to know what the fuck. Now, in February, Trump's longtime accounting firm, Mazars USA, also announced 
Noisily, we would say that it was severing ties with the former president's business. The AG's office believes Cushman has a decade-long history of issuing questionable statements about the value of Trump's properties. This is what Wallace said. Now, the AG's office has said that those questionable assessments were used by Trump to get hundreds of millions of dollars in loans and tax breaks. Now, those properties include Trump's family's Westchester County estate, Seven Springs, which you've heard a lot about, the Trump National Golf Course near Los Angeles, and 40 Wall Street in Manhattan. That's the address, 40 Wall Street. Now, Cushman valued Trump's stake in the skyscraper at $220 million in 2012, okay? So remember, $220 million in 2012. Three years later, the assessment, the stake was $550 million. That's more than double what they said three years prior. And I guarantee it did not increase that much. And this is another quote. For the second time today, a judge has made clear that no one is above the law. And that was from James. And she said that in her press statement. Went on to say Cushman and Wakefield's work for Donald J. Trump and the Trump Organization is clearly relevant in our investigation. And we are pleased that it has now been confirmed by the court. (laughs) Yeah, this is going to be fun. And newly obtained text messages and recent court filings fill in significant gaps about the key role that a little known Pennsylvania Republican congressman played at almost every turn in scheming to fuck up the 2020 election. The texts, which are among those selectively provided by Donald Trump's former White House chief of staff Meadows to the House Select Committee, show Rep. Scott Perry pushing to have the nation's top intelligence official investigate baseless conspiracy theories. And I mean, really fucking baseless conspiracy theories and working to replace the U.S. acting attorney general with an acolyte, Jeffrey Clark, willing to do Trump's bidding. Quote from an intel friend, he texts, DNI needs to task NSA to immediately seize and begin looking for international comms related to Dominion. That was November 12th in a text from Perry to Meadows, just five days after the election. Now, remember, Donald Trump installed one of his lackeys as the general counsel at the NSA. And it was the same guy who he put in at the NSA for general counsel that hid the Zelensky call on that top secret, you know, secret classified code word system. Same fucking guy. Anyway, once the, so Perry's asking, said, do, do you need to ask the NSA to seize voting machines or internal communications for Dominion? In the text, which has not yet previously been reported, Perry appears to be urging Meadows to get John Ratcliffe, then DNI, to order the NSA to investigate debunked claims that Dominion voting machines were hacked by China. Perry has thus far declined to voluntarily cooperate with the House Select Committee and in previous statements has called the committee illegitimate. Perry wrote to Meadows again that same day, November 12th, claiming the Brits orchestrated a conspiracy to manipulate voting machines in the United States and that then CIA director Gina Haspel was helping cover it up. Oh, my God. (laughs) And this is why Gina Haspel was in trouble for so long. Quote, and Gina is still running around the hill covering for the Brits who helped quarterback this entire operation. That's Perry, by the way, a former brigadier general. DNI needs to be tasked to audit their overseas accounts at CIA and their National Endowment for Democracy. This is crazy pants, AG. It's fucking crazy pants. I think Perry was hanging out with uh, another former general. A little bit too much, if you know what I mean, Mike. I do. Mike Flynn. Now, more than a month later, Perry texted Meadows a YouTube video because he did some research detailing another conspiracy theory that votes were changed by Italian satellites. Remember this one? 
Quote, why can't we just work with the Italian government? According to this is according to the text logs. Now, Meadows does not appear to have responded to that message or emails released. But emails released by the Senate Judiciary Committee last year show he did forward that same video to Jeffrey Rosen (laughs) hours after Perry sent it to him. Rosen subsequently refused to look into the claim further and said he would not be, quote, giving any special treatment to Giuliani or any of his, quote, unquote, witnesses. (laughs) An email discussion between the acting attorney general and top DOJ officials shows that pure insanity. Another DOJ official said that was Richard Donahue responding about the Italian satellite claim. Pure insanity. A new court filing also reveals how Perry played a key role in strategizing with Trump allies about throwing out electoral votes in states that Trump lost. In testimony released Friday, Cassidy Hutchinson told House investigators about Scott Perry's role in White House strategy sessions. Quote, Mr. Perry is one that immediately jumps to mind as me recalling him physically being there and then pushing back. And she's talking about pushing back against the White House counsel over whether the plan for states to submit alternate slates of electors was legal because, you know, the. White House counsel was like, that's illegal, bro. On November 21st, Meadows also went through Perry in order to get in touch with local lawmakers in his state. Meadows did that. So he's helping orchestrate this. Quote, can you send me the number for the speaker and the leader of Pennsylvania legislatures? POTUS wants to chat with them, Meadows wrote to Perry. More than a month later, Perry texted Meadows stressing a need for urgency as January 6th and the inauguration were quickly approaching. Mark, just checking in as time continues to count down. 11 days to January 6th and 25 days to inauguration. We got to get going. That's what he wrote the day after Christmas. Now, on five occasions, according to text messages reviewed by CNN, Perry texted Meadows to request a conversation, move to the encrypted messaging app Signal, or to alert Meadows to message he sent on the encrypted platform. Now, of course, the committee doesn't have the signal app messages, at least as far as we know, but DOJ can get them. As we know, we've seen many indictments that include messages from Signal and WhatsApp. The texts also show Scott Perry acted as a conduit between Meadows and the Justice Department attorney Jeffrey Clark, a relatively obscure dickbag who emerged as a central figure in Trump's election gambit after Trump nearly named him as acting attorney general in days before the U.S. Capitol riot. Quote, Mark, you should call Jeff. Mark, you should call Jeff. I just get off the phone with him. He explained to me why the principal deputy won't work, especially with the FBI. They'll view it as not having the authority to enforce what needs to be done. Yeah, because it's fucking illegal. (laughs) Perry texted Meadows on December 26th, again, days before the heated Oval Office meeting where Trump raised the idea of replacing then acting Attorney General Rosen with Clark. Quote, I got it. I think I understand. Let me work on the deputy position. Meadows responded. Let me work on it. That was his actual response. And nearly a week later, Perry texted Meadows again about Clark. Please call me the instant you get off the phone with Jeff, he wrote on January 2nd, referring to Jeff Clark. As Olofgren, a Democrat we know, told CNN, she's on the committee, she told CNN they have not ruled out issuing subpoenas to lawmakers, including Perry. Lofgren noted that because Perry swore to uphold the Constitution as a member of Congress, he's legally obliged to speak to the committee. Amazing how much trouble this man's in. Mm. All right. This next story, a Florida governor, Ron Disaster, signed a bill Monday to create a police force dedicated to pursuing voter fraud and other election crimes, embracing a top priority of Republicans after the former president, Donald Trump, his false claims that his reelection was stolen. So now DeSantis is doing the bidding. Voter fraud is rare, typically occurs in isolated instances. It's generally detected. Now, an Associated Press investigation of the 2020 presidential election found fewer than 475 potential cases, not 1,000, 
475 potential cases of voter fraud out of 25.5 million ballots cast in the six states where Trump and his allies disputed his loss to President Joe Biden. The law creates an Office of Election Crimes and Security under the Florida Department of State to review fraud allegations and conduct preliminary investigations. Now, DeSantis is required to appoint a group of special officers from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement who would be tasked with pursuing the election law violations. Existing state law allowed the governor to appoint officers to investigate violations of election law, but did not require him to do so. Of course it didn't. <laughs> That's the, the only he's thing happy this shit to. does, right? It's just a, I know. Well, now the governor's required. And this could bite him in the ass if he loses. Oh, I sure hope so. The law also increases penalties for the collection of completed ballots by a third party, often referred to as ballot harvesting. Now that's been lifted to a felony. It raises fines for certain election law violations and requires that election supervisors perform voter list maintenance on a more frequent basis. U.S. District Judge Mark Walker overturned a provision of last year's law limiting when people use a drop box to submit their ballot, along with a section prohibiting anyone from engaging with people waiting to vote. You can't talk to people online. You can't bring them water. You can't bring them food. Like, that's basically what this is saying. He also blocked a section that placed new rules on grounds that register voters, including one requiring that people working to register voters submit their names and permanent addresses to the state. Now, to DeSantis' administration is working to reverse Walker's ruling. So mm-hmm. all of those things were good things. And DeSantis is now trying to reverse that. Yeah, the, the fact that the judge blocked all those crappy things. Correct. Yeah, and, and I mean, this is just frightening. This is this is how this is how Putin keeps winning elections. Uh, it would also be interesting because we know a lot of the people doing the voting harvesting are Republicans. So are they really going to enforce these laws? That's going to bite them in the ass, too, because, yeah, ballot harvesting is, is something a lot of Republicans do, especially in Florida. Yeah. All right. From Kyle Cheney, real quick here. Merrick Garland insisted Tuesday when he was testifying there's been no improper political influence over the Justice Department's investigation into Hunter Biden. Under questioning from Senator Bill Haggerty, Republican, Garland said the president has not leaned on him or anyone in the DOJ to conclude his son had not committed any crimes. And he repeatedly emphasized that the U.S. attorney in Delaware, David Weiss, is the one investigating and he was appointed by Trump and he's fully in charge of it. (laughs) Haggerty noted that Biden aides had publicly said the president believes his son did not commit any crimes. And the Republican asked why Americans should have confidence the DOJ was not influenced by those statements. And he says, because we put the investigation in the hands of a Trump appointee, he said. (laughs) You have me as the attorney general who's committed to the independence of the Justice Department. Haggerty also grilled Garland about whether Department of Justice had considered appointing a special counsel to probe the Hunter Biden related matters. And he's like, you fucking dumbass. I'm going to paraphrase what Merrick Garland said, but this is what he was thinking. You're so fucking dumb. We don't have independent councils anymore. We have special councils. They aren't independent of the DOJ. They work for the Department of Justice. So currently you already sort of have that because it's a Trump appointee investigating who reports to me. And if I appointed a special counsel, it would be somebody I appointed who reports to me. So why don't you shut the fuck up now? Of course. And scene. Thank you. All right. With all that out of the way, we'll be right back with something a little more refreshing. Luma Mufla. She's going to discuss her new book, Learning America, One Woman's Fight for Educational Justice for Refugee Children. Stick around. We'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. 
Hey, everybody. It's AG for The Daily Beans. Thanks for supporting the show. Today, we'd like to thank our latest sponsor, The Hysteria Podcast, for supporting the show. Crooked Media's Hysteria is a weekly podcast hosted by a political commentator and comedy writer Aaron Ryan and former Obama White House Deputy Chief of Staff Alyssa Mastromonaco. They're joined by a bicoastal squad of funny, opinionated women who cover everything from reproductive rights to rom-coms, breaking down the political news of the week, plus the topics, trends, and cultural stories that affect women's lives. If you like The Daily Beans and you're looking for another fun, fascinating podcast that keeps you entertained and informed, I highly recommend checking out Hysteria. New episodes of Hysteria drop every Thursday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I am honored to be joined today by the author of a new book. It just came out April 5th. It's available everywhere. It's called Learning America, One Woman's Fight for Educational Justice for Refugee Children. Please welcome Luma Muffla. Hi, Luma. Awesome. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you about this this amazing book. And thank you and thanks to your publisher for sending me my copy. This is such incredible information, such important information right now, particularly in with the onslaught of all the book banning and CRT noise and everything that we're not supposed to be teaching people in certain states. We won't mention any names, Florida. But I wanted to talk to you today about some of the aspects of this book. You describe your story. I want to start with this. You describe your story as beginning with, quote, a mistake, a wrong turn. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I was born and raised in, in Jordan. Um, I came to the United States when I was 18. So I'm going to fast track th- through that part to get to that uh, wrong turn. But I was, um, I was living in um, Decatur, Georgia. It's a suburb right outside of Atlanta. And I would occasionally go to a Middle Eastern grocery store to get authentic uh, pita and hummus. And one day, taking that trip many times, I missed my turn back onto Ponce de Leon. And I had to U-turn into this apartment complex. And when I did, I saw these kids outside playing soccer. They were outside playing with rocks set up as goals and a really raggedy soccer ball. They reminded me of home, of the way I grew up playing soccer in the streets of Jordan with my brothers and cousins. And I'd been coaching club soccer for a while. So I happened to have a soccer ball in my car, grabbed it out of my trunk. The boys wanted the ball. I wanted to play. The rest is history. Um, so that's how it started. The original group of boys I met were from uh, Afghanistan, Liberia, and South Sudan. Wow, that that's amazing. And and so many things I've found in life just sort of are because of wrong turns or accidents. And so I think that that's absolutely wonderful that that encounter sort of happened totally by mistake, right? Totally by mistake. And then here we are. And you have this incredible book, Learning America. And it's the story of your growing a soccer team into what is today the only accredited network of schools for refugee children, the only one. Who were the people that inspired you to do this? Who set you on this path? I know that the wrong turn is part of it, but who else played a role there? I think my grandmother played a big role. Um, You know, she fled uh, Syria during the first Assad regime. My mom was 16 at the time, you know, packed up her car, uh, five kids. She was pregnant with her six and fled to neighboring Jordan. Um, my grandfather um, didn't join her. He said, oh, it's going to blow over. There's another coup, another war. I mean, you live in the Middle East. It's always something's about to happen. You never know when to take it seriously. But he ended up joining her two months later after his factory was seized by the government and his brothers were arrested and, and disappeared. And they started their life again in Jordan. But she never uh, forgot that experience. She was fiercely and 
Syrian and uh, very much proud of that and always wanted us to remember them having to leave their their home. It was always very grounded and humble and pushed me to always think more. Yeah, it reminds me of um, recently spoke with uh, Colonel Alexander Vindman and how he says we have to just keep starting over, keep starting over, you know. And when you started, it's called the Fuji's Academy. And as as it grew, you actually needed to find other adults that were that were into this, that, that understood the mission and that wanted to be part of it. How did you find those people? I mean, it was um, learning through a lot of mistakes, like what did not work, right? Um, at the beginning, it was anyone who was willing to work for what we could afford. And that wasn't a lot of people or their life experience was not a good fit. And just constantly pushing myself and, and our organization to get better at how do we find people that can help teach, educate the kids and care for them, still have high expectations and high standards. Um, a lot of the people that we initially attracted had this like, oh, we're going to save a kid. We're, gonna, we're doing this um, kind of like the charity one and done deal. A lot of the savior complex was coming in and slowly we tried to shift that. And part of it was like, how can we get to the root of who a person is and their life experience? Like, we're not going to get everyone who's had refugee or immigrant experience, but have they struggled in their life? What does that look like? Did they get out of it? How did they get out of it alone? Or did they lean on others to help them get through it? This work is really hard. Adjusting to a new country is super hard. And people need to be part of a team that, that works together. And so those are the people we were looking for. Those are the ones that end up being successful with us. Yeah, that's amazing. And and, and these kids, too, are are really incredible kids. And uh, I wanted to ask you, I, I mean, I wish we could t- talk about them all, <laughs> but I wanted to ask you some of the standout moments, particularly what is one of the most painful things that you've ever heard a Fuji's Academy student say to you? I remember there's been so many um, <laughs> I mean, one of the hardest, not one of our students, but the reason to start the school is when uh, one of my players told me he couldn't read. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd been in the country for three years in public school, could speak English, but couldn't recognize the letters in a textbook. And that broke me um, because, you know, my parents sent me to British American schools growing up. They believed America was the best the world had to offer. And here I was like, wait. Not all schools are like the State Department run school I attended in in Jordan. And I I just believed in education can change trajectories if everyone has equal access to the opportunities, but they didn't. So I think that was a heartbreaking moment. Yeah. um, The way that the way I run my show is I go through the news in the beginning and then at the end I go through the good news and uh, to sort of cleanse everyone's palate and, and end on a little bit of an up note. So I want to ask you about some of the more joyful moments and a standout moment for me was about a kid named uh, Bishnu. Can you talk about, can you talk about him? You know, part of this work is like, it's so gruesome, your day-to-day learning in the classroom and you look for these moments of joy and hope. And um, I host a 4th of July uh, barbecue at my house. Um, we have a hot dog eating competition and the person you least expect to win was just one after the other, after the other, <laughs> and everybody just floored and cheering him on. And, um, you know, it's like the simple moments of when you can connect back to things like eating hot dogs and hanging out and having a cookout that you can celebrate and, and laugh together. And, and kids definitely bring that regularly. 
And then another standout for me was a Congolese student that you called Pascal. Can you can you talk about him coming up from he was he was not doing well. He was having failing grades. He came to us, um, you know, from the Congo, struggled uh, academically, hadn't been in school the majority of his life, you know, and, you know, we're trying to get him to catch up. He also lacked a lot of the social skills as well, like things that from holding a pencil to uh, laundry, um, everything that I think we take for granted. And, you know, um, first time he, he read his report card uh, to the students, he couldn't read it. He flipped it upside down, didn't know, and was failing every grade And because he didn't have any of that fundamentals. And then uh, six weeks later, we're reading report cards and... Um, you know, he can decipher the letters of his subjects and you know, I'm standing next to him and then he reads, um, there's all C's, a couple of F's as well, but the whole room just like exploded into applause mm. because every kid had seen him at the moment he couldn't read. And then when he could and to acknowledge the hard work and improvement he'd done in such like which room would explode because as you know, 12 year old can now read the word art, you know, and it's a big deal. You know, it kept him going, kept him pushing. It's important, I think, for kids to have other peers acknowledge that as well and see that. Yeah. And I imagine that also keeps the adults going. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. before I let you go, you say toward the end of the book that you've begun work that you hope will put the Fuji schools out of business. Uh, can you, yeah. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, I think the pandemic, you know, brought us all to our knees. You know, it lifted the veil of everything that was wrong in our society and country and especially in schools. Pre-pandemic, we wanted to open more charters, more um, voucher-funded schools where we could operate and realize we'd have a sliver of the impact. And we really wouldn't be changing anything. That if we wanted to impact the majority of kids coming into this country, we'd have to partner with school districts. And so we launched what we're calling Project Taranga. And it's a Senegalese word for uh, community and hospitality and welcoming. And we're working with school districts to help them design and redesign their uh, newcomer programs based on our model. And we hope to impact so many kids and train teachers that our work is not necessary anymore. And if anybody wants information on, on how they can get involved with or support this, this new program that you're working on, where can they do that? They go onto our website. Um, there's information on there, fujisfamily.org. They can also send an email to coach at fujisfamily.org. That comes to a bunch of us, but that's the general email. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much for the, for the work that you're doing. It's truly incredible. It's also inspirational. And I think it shows, I think, I think the lesson here is that sometimes a wrong turn is a right turn. And yeah. um, is it ever and, really a wrong turn, right? <laughs> and, and literally, and that there's so many people that yeah. are willing to help. So Again, the book is called Learning America, One Woman's Fight for Educational Justice for Refugee Children. It's available now wherever you get your books. Luma, Mafla, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Allison. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Hi, everybody. It's AG for The Daily Beans. And today our show is brought to you by the amazing folks at Hunter Douglas. You know, I recently gutted and redesigned my whole house and Hunter Douglas was a big part of that. Because with Hunter Douglas, you'll find expertly crafted window treatments with beautiful fabrics and automatic position-adjustable systems. That's called PowerView Technology by Hunter Douglas, and it adjusts your shades automatically based on the time of day to provide maximum light control, privacy, and insulation. Your room will be filled with a pleasant glow, courtesy of Hunter Douglas shades that diffuse harsh sunlight. 
And in addition to providing privacy, their shades can help you save money and ease a little of the burden on the electrical grid by keeping your room cooler in the summer and warmer in the winter. Consequently, your home is more functional, fashionable, and comfortable. And one of my favorite features is PowerView. I told you it automatically adjusts those shades so that regardless of the time of day, there's an optimal balance that's maintained between light privacy and insulation. So check out Hunter Douglas today. Right now, for a limited time, you can take advantage of a generous rebate savings opportunity on select styles. Just visit HunterDouglas.com slash DailyBeans for details. That's HunterDouglas.com slash DailyBeans for details on limited time, generous rebate savings opportunities on select styles. You'll be glad you did. Hey, I'm Ben Micellis. I'm Brett Micellis. And I'm Jordy. And we are the hosts of the Midas Touch podcast, the top rated, top watched political podcast for pro-democracy content. Each week, we do multiple episodes where we break down the political issues of the day here in the United States and abroad as we fight for democracy. Isn't that right, Brett? That's right, Ben. We've had conversations with some incredible guests like White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, Beto O'Rourke, DNC Chair Jamie Harrison, Glenn Kirshner, Mary Trump, celebrities like Deborah Messing, Alyssa Milano, Michael Rappaport, and more. So subscribe to the Midas Touch podcast wherever you get your podcast. That's the Midas Touch, M-E-I-T-A-S-T-O-U-C-H podcast. Jordy, anything to add? Shout out to the Midas Mighty. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we'll float on good news is on the way. And if you have any good news or confessions or corrections or would-be stories, or you want to tell us what you're making or creating, tell us about your small business, or you just want to send in pet pics or some adoptable pets in your area, you can do all that by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. And we're trying to build our ratings back up after they all got erased. So if you have a minute and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, go give us a rating. We would love you very much. Dana, first up from Katya, no pronouns given. Hi, AG. Probably a really long shot here, but here it goes. I own a small business in Oceanside. Oh, it's in our backyard, Dana. I need to hire a general manager and I want to hire a woman veteran. I've called the Marines. I was told to go to military.com and register, which I did, but no one's reached out to me. I think after listening to the Daily Beans the other morning, I thought, what the heck? Why not? Maybe AG will have some ideas. It's a great idea. I do, Katya. And I'll send you some resources that I'll try to dig those up here this week for you. But if there are any female veterans in the San Diego, Oceanside, Orange County area, Katya is hiring as general manager. So it's email me at hello at MullerSheWrote.com and I will get your information to Katya. Well, wonderful. All right. This is from usually pronouns she and her. I'm a granny now. Ooh. I don't think my own kids know that I was a hoop back in the day. This is my first confession since the priest gave me the most pissy penance and made me not penitent. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, I attended a family of... Sorry, these are words that are new to me as a Jew. I attended a family... <laughs> <laughs> I attended a family event in Queens, got scooped up by my dearest friend in Octagonage Village. John and I ended up at the Anvil. Ooh, many martinis later, I was hoisted up onto the bar, finally realized the kid on the trapeze worked with me. I needed glasses. We did the whole, what are you doing here? To the other. I know that night morning, we both gave the audience a standing O show. Things got fuzzy after that, but when I woke, I was being tended to by Diana Ross, Barbara Streisand, and Carol Channing in their fabulous teeny tiny dressing room. What? This is an amazing fucking story. I love you, ladies. Here's a pic of my grandkid Winnie, a rescue pup plot hound, (laughs) who is the sweetest pibble. 
And yes, look at the pibble with the sweet little oh, headdress. The little crown. crown of flowers. That story is amazing. It truly is. Thank you for that. That's really awesome. <laughs> I especially love the part where you did the whole, what are you doing here to each other? Because I absolutely love that. Next up from AJ. Hello, dearest of all things, Beans. About a year ago, I went through an unfortunate breakup. It's taken time, but I'm getting back to my original self. Due to economics, I decided on a shared housing situation, and now I live with an excellent housemates, one of which is this wacky, adorable pup. I'm told she's a pit bull lab mix, but as you can see from the photos, he's clearly a dog-crocodile crossbreed. <laughs> AG, I listened to your interview on Greg Oliar's Prevail. Hearing you and Greg together was great. I'm continually impressed by you and your achievements. I listen to opening arguments. I love Clean Up on L45. Listening to Daily Beans and Muller She Wrote has had a snowball effect, leading me from one great podcast to another. I now have an excellent lineup of interesting and informative shows to choose from. Yeah, and AJ, check out mswmedia.com. There's even more. Thank you, AG, Dana, and Amy for your great voices and helping me make the last five years bearable. <laughs> Look at this dog. <laughs> and then he puts a shot of a, a crocodile alligator. Oh my God, I love it. What a honey. Thank you for the that. dog nibbling on the knees. All right, this is from Mario. Pronouns are undecided, which I love. Hey, Beanies, I have two pictures for a submission. The first is a be related. Every time I go on a trip, my kids send along a stuffed animal each. For my recent training, they sent along a narwhal and a monkey, <laughs> along with the blanket my partner sent with me. The second is my two-year-old pup, Gracie, after a recent snowfall. She didn't want to come in when I called her sister in. Now, if you want to play guys, uh, guess the breed. She's uh, three to one. Oh, oh. Here's the answer. Okay. Well. Yep. There's the answer. All right. She's three to one. Colleen to Bernice, according to the farmer we got her from. Yeah. Thank you for all the amazing content you make. You've helped keep me sane. There is a very little snow covered collie. <laughs> oh, look at the Norwal and the monkey. So sweet. Hanging out together like pals. That's so wonderful. Thank you for that. I really appreciate that. And finally today, Renee, pronoun she and her. Hello, Beans Queens. I think this is good news. Last Saturday, I helped arrange a meet and greet for John Fetterman, Dem candidate for U.S. Senate for Pennsylvania. The event was well attended and attendees were enthusiastic. Fetterman has two Dem primary challengers, but Fetterman is the grassroots favorite, mostly funded by small donations, thousands of them from across the state. He is beating the others in the polls by double digits. Thus, one of his challengers with a less well-funded campaign and a lot of corporate money is running attack ads against him. Fetterman pledged that he will never use his donations to attack another Democrat said, if we want to attack Dems, please send the check to the RNC. Uh, they are way better at attack ads. Fetterman is the progressive in the race. Thus, he is not Dem Party elite chosen one. Hopefully, we will show them they need to listen to the people who do the work and not the old guard who fears change. Anyway, I told Giselle, John's wife, that my daughter was jealous and she could not meet him since she had to stay home to care for my elderly mom. I said mom was jealous, too. Giselle asked how far away we lived. Keep in mind, they had a five-hour drive to get to Bucks County from their home back in Braddock, PA. They left the house at about 4 a.m. They had more events that day and then drove back to Braddock that night. Giselle asked for my address and then went and spoke with John and campaign staffers. She later asked if it would be okay if they stopped by and said hi to my daughter and mom. I stayed at the venue to clean up with the other volunteers, as is standard. Attached are pics of Lieutenant Government Fetterman, his lovely wife Giselle, with my daughter and our boy Thibault, who was a good boy and not a bouncy reindeer at the moment. Also, the Fettermans and my mom. Finally, there's a photo of the Fettermans at, and Wawa Coffee. 
This is a good, they're a good natured rivalry between Western PA, where the convenience store is Sheets, and here in Eastern PA, where Wawa is the store. For the locals, that last pick is a good joke. Look at this. He came to their house to visit their mom. It is amazing. Daughter. Daughter's so happy, and she has a mask on, and she's lit up. Oh, that's wonderful. She's beautiful. Look at the next one without the mask. I know. I love her sweater and her necklace. Oh, my God. And then I guess Pennsylvanians will get Yardley loves loves Fetterman. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't get it. Love it. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for that submission. And again, if you have anything you want to send in to us, you can do it at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. I'm not going to step into any <laughs> local dem races that I'm unfamiliar with. I'm, I'm waiting for a, a victor to emerge and I'm just going to back that dem. I just want everyone to know that that's what uh, that's how I roll. And uh, Dana, I know you're going to be out the next couple of days, but I, I wish that I wish you to have the best time hosting these events and thank you doing amazing things and partying with incredible people. I'm glad I could join you today. It's nice to be with you. So thanks for letting me sneak up on you. And I'll be back in a little while, like, like a week. All right. And we'll see you then. And uh, until tomorrow, I'll be back on the beans tomorrow. Until then, everyone, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q. I've been AG. And I've been DG. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>